0: Thank you for your singing. There was a quiet moment there when I actually heard the, the little ones' voices, and that's really precious. Let's encourage them to, to keep singing and express these things. We recently uh, went to a movie. <clears throat> the movie was uh, The Greatest Showman, and it's about the story uh, Hubert, Hugh Jackman plays, uh, this roller coaster life of P.T. Barnum. And it was rated PG, I think, for uh, thematic elements or something like that. And we go to movies, and the reason they have these ratings, because decades ago they were concerned about whether movies were appropriate for children, which is a legitimate concern. And so, um, the book you have in your hand, your, your Bible... If this were put to a one-long movie, as some sections have been, well, what would you rate? What do you think they would rate the Bible? If the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, rated the Bible, what do you think it would get? Some people are laughing. You'd like to think the Bible's for everyone. But stop and think about some of these passages, and they're not so appropriate sometimes. We had a Bible study some months ago, and we were in the mid-chapters of Genesis, and anticipating the discussion, I actually coordinated for my youngest child to not be present, because I knew to deal with that passage realistically would be deeper than she would be prepared to swim. So that's kind of where we are today. We have a passage that is rated PG, maybe pushing, pushing R at the end for violence. Now, a little bit of a a pre-understanding on my part. Uh, I have a military background, so that may give me a little more... Maybe I'm acclimated to a higher level of violence. Maybe some of you are gamers, and you're really into some of that, and your mind is very predisposed to, to seeing that. But others are on completely other side of the spectrum, where you might not be comfortable with boxing or watching football. And so we just, I think we have to address that, just acknowledge it before we come to a text and know that we, we bring something to the text. I bring one thing, you bring, you bring another. That's what we have today. I'll just read the last verse. We're going to be in Psalm 137, but the last verse, warning. Uh, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Yeah, it's just out of context, that's a little, that's almost alarming, isn't it? So what do we do with that? One commentator has said uh, this: it's helpful, insightful. Perhaps this psalm, perhaps this psalm will be understood and valued among us only if we experience some concrete brutalization. Concrete brutalization. That's what it would take to. Uh, really appreciate this psalm. Is that true? We'll we'll discuss that. Um, But this is a sort of a more rare type of situation. So I don't think it's going to be that way, but we're going to have to look at this from the situation of uh, the people back then, ancient Near East people. So at any rate, this psalm is not your every morning... Good morning, Java. Cup of coffee, type of reading, but it does—it's going to be a testimony to the, the sufficiency of the Scripture that even that is is relevant. So, what I'd like to do this morning is uh, one of my recent—not uh, a discovery, but appreciation—is called the rereading. After making observations and some understanding, then reread the text, and usually it's extremely helpful. So we're going to do that. We'll step through this, and then we're going to reread it, and hopefully verse nine comes to you with more clarity. So let's. Uh, this is found on page uh, five twenty one of your Q Bible. As Steve says, if you're here today and you you uh, you have a Bible, you can take that as a gift. starts out, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. The situation here is is one that's more clear than in any of the many other Psalms, because we know exactly when this took place. The people of Israel... Are in exile, and the psalmist actually witnessed some horrifying things. He he was there in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came; they ransacked the city, and now he's in exile, and he's thinking about what had happened. And this is his piece of poetry about that. By the waters of Babylon, they had these waters that the great rivers in Babylon, and they would make channels off the sides of them. And so here they are sitting down by the waters and they sat down and wept when they remembered Jerusalem. Why were they weeping? I think we have to consider two reasons. First is that they were in exile and brutality had taken place. But there's a second one. I think it's not listed. It's got to be implied. We have to give the psalmist some credit. They were there for a reason. They were in exile because they were unfaithful to the covenant with God. And so when he sits down and weeps there, when he remembered Zion, Zion's another word for Jerusalem, there was extreme sorrow, in anguish over what had happened, and why it had happened. So then his, his answer then is to say, "And on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Some versions say we hung up our hearts. Why? For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And their response was How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? All the instruments are hung up. They're not going to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. So you have to really appreciate what's going on. They're they the Lord's people. They were brought out of Egypt, miraculously, brought into this promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. They were God's people in God's land. They had music. They had music for marching up to the feasts. They had music for Sabbath days. They had music for everything. They had a temple in which to sing their music. And now they're in Babylon, in exile, having been brutalized. Sing us a song from Jerusalem. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? See, the situation is clear. Verse 1, we have, there we sat down. Verse 2, the willows, there we hung up our harps. Verse 3, there our captives expected us to sing a song. It's about where they were. They weren't where they wanted to be. They weren't where they should have been. They were in exile. They were not at home. So while being sitting by the river is generally a pleasant description of a place it was very sad, very angry for them they were in anguish so I want you to appreciate that the contradiction of the situation sing a song of Zion here in this situation we've been massacred, stolen from our home and placed here and you want us to sing. Can't do it. So for us, the reality is oftentimes we, sometimes we put ourselves where we are. I think that's what they were realizing in part. And that's agonizing. My misjudgment, my sin, my decision-making has put me in this position. And I hate it. So this question, how shall I sing the song? It shows that the psalmist is, is, engages, is engaging his situation. He's pondering what has happened and why. Why am I here? And so for him and for, for all of us, in our anguish, can we say, I will struggle. I will sit down, as it were. I will struggle to understand my circumstances in light of my suffering. let's continue reading what is his response now having given thought to where he is and why he is there let's read verses 5 and 6 and we'll see we'll listen for these, this inward resolve to faithfulness there's an occasion for anguish his initial response now is the inward resolve to faithfulness verse 5 If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. It's very easy for us to respond in situations of anguish, of great pain, and want to, to lash out take action. Put that energy into something destructive. But here we see the psalmist in this extreme situation. He's actually inwardly resolving to be faithful. Some of that will be a response to understanding why he is where he is. Because as a nation, they were unfaithful. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, constant memory, let my right hand forget its skill. He was just talking about playing an instrument. Let my right hand forget its skill. I can't play. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. They were just talking about singing. Sing a song. Well, if your tongue is stuck to the top of your mouth, you can't Sing this is the introduction of what we're going to talk about it being an imprecation uh, a verbal curse he's basically calling one down on himself if I am not faithful then take away my strength, take away my ability the psalmist is, is doubling down on his devotion his resolve for Jerusalem is extreme devotion He's saying, no matter where I am, no matter how bad it gets, I will remember you, Jerusalem, even though I'm this far away, perhaps even especially because of it. And so for us, we can say, you know, in in my anguish, in my exile, so to speak, um, can I commit myself to faithfulness? Perhaps I brought myself here. Perhaps not. These situations are foreign to us, I hope. Maybe someone's experienced particular uh, abuse, but these things, there are prisons. There are uh, concentration camp-type places around the world. Uh, In our prayer, we listed off these nations where people are suffering grossly, these sort of brutalizations. So while it may be foreign to us here, and I hope it is, it's a real thing. And the scriptures deal with real life. And we're thankful that it does that. So there's an occasion for anguish. There's also this inward resolve to faithfulness. And then we get to verses 7, 8, and 9, the very end. And we'll find an upward response of trust in God. Verses 7, 8, and 9. let read verse 7 first. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. The Edomites were a, a neighboring nation to Israel. And when the Babylonians came to attack, the Edomites basically cheered them on. And it was known. So the psalmist realizes that, recognizes it, and has a response. And calls the Lord to remember what they had done. And when he says, against the Edomites, remember, O Lord, he's he's saying, pay them back. This is imprecation. This is a a verbal cursing. You've heard, maybe you've heard the imprecatory Psalms. This is one of them, for sure. It's calling down curses on people. Something we might naturally struggle with. We're in Psalm 137, but just turn back one page to Psalm 129. Psalm 129 verses 5 and 6 May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward Let's read verse 4 too The Lord is righteous He has cut the cords of the wicked May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward Let them be like grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up The psalmist there is calling a curse on all the wicked Uh, the Old Testament isn't the only place to have these sorts of imprecations there in the New Testament too I'll I'll list a few for you Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.22 says if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ let him be anathema that means let him be accursed Galatians 1, 8 and 9, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now we say again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you that we have not received, let him be accursed. We don't use that language too much, so we're kind of comfortable with that. That doesn't scare us. But that saying, let him be accursed, that's calling down damnation from God. On other people, and so if we if we change the language a little bit, a lot of us would kind of go, Ugh, awkward, uncomfortable. And imprecation is that way. But why? In Second Timothy four, uh, Paul says, uh, "Alexander the coppersmith, remember him? He did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works." John in Revelation says, uh, avenge our blood on them. Take them out in the current lingo. And the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 24, speaking about Judas, "Woe unto the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. That is unambiguous. Back to the Psalms. We look over to Psalm 30, 139, probably a favorite of many. Let's look at Psalm 139 and verse 17. And let's let's try to catch the the psalmist's attitude throughout this. Uh, A few verses Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them? If we would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake, I am still with you. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So sandwiched between this praise and a very open, transparent, Lord, if, if, if my thoughts aren't right, let me know. In between those two things, are, is a very concrete imprecation. A lot of us teach our kids, don't use that word. We don't hate anything, anyone. I'm not contesting that per se, but here the psalmist is expressing, on behalf of God, I hate your enemies. Again, that's, we have to understand the ancient Near Eastern Thinking. And this is poetry, for sure. So expect things to be a little more uh, embellished and expressive. But this passage in Psalm 139 exposes the true nature of biblical imprecation. When we took verse 9 out of context, and just talk about babies being smashed on the rocks, that's uncomfortable language. But we understand it's poetic and how the attitude of the psalmist really is and his circumstances. It exposes the true nature of biblical imprecation. So we need to follow the context. So the challenge is, is to take these things and not see them personally, Although that is our society, we tend to read anything and it's for me. What do I do? That kind of thing. Not personally, but rather cosmically. Did you catch that God is always involved in this? The psalmist is is calling on God to get involved, not himself. Because the psalm gets even hotter. Let's continue reading the last two verses. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction... Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So let's note three things as we contemplate imprecation generally. And and this one specifically It is poetry. Take that into consideration. Next, this isn't actually escalation. It's not really extreme in their land. It's uncomfortable for us at first, but you've heard of the expression an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, Lex talionis is what it's called. And it's an ancient uh, form of justice. It's a legal term. So if something happened, if this person kills this person's lamb, this person would kill this person's cow, and this person would kill this person's child. And this person, the escalation, just ran out of control. And so when it came to the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it wasn't that you actually carry that out. You broke my arm? Okay, let's break his arm. There's, there's no record of anything like that uh, in Israel's history. But it's really is a taming down of the tendency to... Ex- escalate argument. And so seen in that light, an eye for an eye, is a way of making justice and retribution very reasonable, which is what everybody wants. Make the justice, just judgment, uh, fit the crime. That's how we put it in our terms today. Make it fit the crime. And so when the psalmist is saying, hey, let your kids be dashing against the rock, he's saying, hey, you know, you should be attacked by an enemy as well. You're going to go down in war. The same sort of retribution. Now so in, in, in Islamic jurisprudence, we've heard of Sharia law, they actually do participate in some of that. You steal something, they cut your hand off. But it's not in Israel's history. So the first thing is to see it as not escalation, not extreme, but actually quite reasonable. Second, see it as expressing faith and believing God. When the psalmist says, wishing on them this this curse, he's actually citing uh, Isaiah 13. Isaiah was... 13 verse 16 is describing when God would stir up the Medes in the future to conquer the Babylonians and in that passage the same language is is there about the little ones in the rocks And so that was their lingo for that type of response it happens again in uh, Nahum 310 which is about Nineveh and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria They were. It was also prophesied that they would fall, and again, using that same lingo, with the little ones in the rocks. So God curses those who curse Israel, and we're seeing that on the big screen. Thirdly, when we read these imprecations, try to see in there that the personal trust—it's really an extreme faith. Think about it. In lieu of personal revenge, the psalmist is crying out to God. Has anyone here ever been, been like, spitting mad? Like, I'm talking, put a fist through the drywall mad? Throw things off the table mad? I mean, don't raise your hand. But (laughs) there is a temptation in life to get extremely angry. And what if instead of expressing that physically, you could take that and, and turn that into trust and say, God, I'm so mad, but I, I trust you in this situation. You do what's right. Let your justice take place in this situation. That's extreme trust, is it not? To not lash out. Let God handle it. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's not taking it out, taking it in his own hands. And so we see the upward response of faith in God. These imprecations against Edom for what they had done and against Babylon for what they have done are actually an expression of faith and trust in the midst of their bitterness, in the midst of their anguish. They cry out to God to execute vengeance. And justice, and not taking it in their own hands. So when he cries out, "Remember, O Lord," it's it, it's an open hand. It's not a clenched fist. It's quite the difference. So as we read these psalms that have these imprecatory expressions, we need to give the psalmist some credit, uh, allow for his poetry, and realize he's reaching out. And not lashing out. And we can can take a lesson from that for sure. So let's reread this. Given the understanding of what was happening, what had happened to them, and how they were thinking, and how they saw law and justice and faith and what God was doing, let's just reread the nine verses. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they had said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, Doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So I'm hoping we see the character of verse 9 in particular a bit differently. It takes translation not just of, of the words merely and the language, but the culture and the customs and the legal proceedings. Otherwise, it can be a very uncomfortable portion. Well, some of you may still be unsatisfied because we've been in the, essentially the whole Old Testament. and Even my 13-year-old a few weeks ago said, doesn't the Bible say Forgive your enemies? And she's right. The cross affects this. The cross has something to say about even these situations. Many things will be familiar to you. Uh, Like the Lord Jesus said, you should love your enemies. Uh, James, be angry and do not sin. He says, uh, rejoice in your trials. James says, uh, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. You see how these all apply. Uh, if you took the psalmist and zoomed him forward thousands of years, these would relate directly to his situation. And Romans twelve nineteen makes it extremely clear, ties this together, where it says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what imprecation would be today. Leave it to the wrath of God. In fact, the the Old Testament actually taught these things, more or less. They would say, uh, you know, feed your enemy, right? Right? It says, uh, if, your, if your, enemy, your, ox is, your, your enemy's ox falls, you help it out. So this isn't, I don't want to see a, a, a huge demarcation between the Old Testament and New Testament. God is this way graciously and mercifully all throughout. But vengeance is his. Proverbs twenty twenty-two about repaying evil, says, wait for the Lord. So this theme is, is through and throughout. And so I think this psalm does many things for us. It acknowledges that anguish and bitterness and anger are very real things. But there is guidance in how to deal with those very strong emotions. What do we do with that kind of energy? And this speaks clearly to that. We've probably felt sort of exiled. We've probably felt vengeful. Uh, we've sh- Uh, probably felt like we've made bad decisions at some point, we've suffered for those things. What do we do in that situation? Well, that's where Psalm 37 is a good read. Understood rightly. Don't blame God. Rather, go to God. Draw near to Him. Don't turn away. And so... When we read something like Psalm 137, verse 9, that language alarms us, and we, we tend to think the psalmist is some sort of violent extremist. I'm going to skip this one. I don't know what to do with it. But really, upon further consideration, we can find that he's really got it right. And we can trust God in our anguish. That's the right response for anguish. Resolve to be faithful And trust him. Faithfulness and trust. Father, thank you for your help. Thank you for the sufficiency of the scriptures and how they deal with even very hard things like the brutality of war and being in exile and having great regret and anguish. Thank you for giving us insight in how to do that and uh, making it poetic for us so it can really sing and sping, speak to us. Father, we, uh, we look at this psalm and perhaps for the most part it's, it might be something for our toolbox. Hopefully it will come to mind next time we, we need it. But we acknowledge that around the world there are people that this may be their morning non-cup-of-coffee song. They live in uh, political prisons and under very extreme persecution. And we just want to acknowledge that that's true and that you are over all these things. We pray for their help. We want to pray as if, as if we're there with them. So comfort them. May they know that they can trust you. And may they have a real strong, uh, a great strength in faithfulness to you, never forgetting, but remembering, even as the psalmist here. So help us with this this day as we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.